I don't understand how a, a person can just come and throw you out of your house and take it over just for the fact that he's a certain religion or a certain nationality. That doesn't give any person the right to do so. Oops, I hear sirens. Do you hear them? This is Russia. That's not her real name. Her family is facing expulsion from their home in Sheikh Jarrah, a neighborhood in occupied East Jerusalem. And she's afraid talking about it could affect their case in Israeli court. Palestinians have been staging sit-ins and protests against the expulsions in Sheikh Jarrah by Israeli settlers. Over the last week, an Israeli crackdown on those protests has engulfed much of the city. I haven't been sleeping well. Last night, I only had an hour of sleep. And that's what we had called to talk about. But Russia had to end her interview because of sirens warning of rockets headed toward Jerusalem. Now, as Sheikh Jarrah's reverberations spread beyond the neighborhood, how will it impact the Palestinian future of Jerusalem? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I'm talking to two women who've been following the story of Sheikh Jarrah. Russia, who was born and raised there, and Al Jazeera journalist Lina Al-Safin in Doha. But on Monday, the story grew beyond the neighborhood to encompass Jerusalem's holy sites. Israelis were commemorating the anniversary of their occupation of East Jerusalem in the 1967 war. Israeli soldiers had already cracked down on worshippers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, for several days. But that morning, the violence grew much more intense. Like almost every Palestinian, Russia was following. Police have fired stun grenades and tear gas at stone-throwing demonstrators inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. The latest numbers from the Palestinian Red Cross are that more than 330 people have been injured. They invaded the Al-Aqsa Mosque and there was a lot of clashes between the soldiers and the people at the mosque, and even some of them uh, were trapped, and the soldiers uh, were throwing gas bombs and then locking the doors so that the people would suffocate and have uh, no means of any clean air to come in. And to Palestinians, there was no mistaking the coinciding of the events at Al-Aqsa and Sheikh Jarrah. Their main purpose is to take over Jerusalem, everything in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem in particular, yani everything, all the religious sites, all the homes, all the areas. Uh, Sheikh Jarrah is very close to Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's like 10 minutes away. It was after that that Hamas fired rockets from Gaza towards parts of Israel and Jerusalem. And soon after that, Israeli air raids killed at least 28 Palestinians in Gaza, according to the health ministry there. Israeli medics also said one woman was killed from rocket attacks near Tel Aviv. That's at the time of this recording. It's a lot to take in. But there's one thing that I think is worth a mention. It's Ramadan, the Muslim month of fasting and reflection. And in better times, Jerusalem in Ramadan is special. I think especially in Jerusalem, it's a magical time, to be honest. 
you have the festive lights, you have this communal spirit, basically. Lina Al-Safin has been following Sheikh Jarrah's past and present for Al Jazeera English. And she had a very different memory of Al-Aqsa in Ramadan. I think one of my best memories was breaking my fast inside the Al-Aqsa compound. Even if you didn't have food, everyone else would bring these amazing dishes that they made at home. And even, you don't know these people, but you end up uh, breaking your fast with them. Um, So it's a very special time, I believe. And I think, you know, Sheikh Jarrah has captured that uh, communal gatherings for breaking their fast. And it's all done outside the homes of the families living in Sheikh Jarrah. But traditionally, Ramadan, let's say, the tensions, they do escalate in, in Ramadan. Israel deliberately provokes the Palestinians or steps up its occupation policies during the month. Russia has seen that play out in Sheikh Jarrah when residents were breaking their fast outside last week. The first thing to understand is the close quarters this is all happening in. It's not that far. Between us and them, there's like four meters, maybe. Yani a street between us, yani a street that, that is big enough for two cars to pass by. We're on one side and then they're on the other side. And on this street are homes that have been taken over by settlers. They were just on the other side of the street while Russia and the others were starting to eat. The settlers came while we were eating and they sprayed gas at the people while they were breaking their fast. And our first reaction was to start throwing what we're eating at them because that's the only thing we had. So we started throwing the uh, water cups and even pots and pans and chairs and stuff like that on them to, you know, let them leave us alone. And that night then nobody ate. They interrupted our breaking the fast. So (laughs) clashes started after that and we didn't eat until uh, 2 a.m., I believe. These kinds of confrontations aren't new or unique. I asked Lena about another one in an online video from Sheikh Jarrah, one she reported on for Al Jazeera. This has a million views on Twitter. I'd love if you could just walk me through what's happening. So I'll play a little bit of it here. Jacob, you know this is not your house. Yes, but if I go, you don't go back. So what's the problem? Why are you yelling at me? I didn't do this. I didn't do this. But you're not It's easy to yell at me, but I didn't do this. You are stealing my house. And if I don't steal it, someone else is going to steal it. No, no one. So, can you describe it for me? So this video shows 22-year-old Muna al-Kurd, and al-Kurd are one of the families that are under threat of imminent forced displacement from the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. She's confronting a settler in the garden of her house. And as you can tell from the video, the settler has a very heavy U.S. accent. The Al-Kult family home, half of it has been taken over by settlers in 2009. So what separates the Al-Kult family from these settlers is basically just drywall. And uh, they've previously described how living basically with these settlers has been an absolutely, we can say, traumatic experience because it's not your friendly neighbors type of situation. These settlers are basically out to do everything they can to force the family to leave their homes. They would blast music out loud. They would reveal themselves nude, press themselves up against windows. They even set fire to one of their youngest siblings' baby crib. So this family has basically been living this reality for over a decade now. 
If I don't steal your house, someone else will steal it. Who is the person saying these words and how did he come to be in Sheikh Jarrah? So this is very much the mentality of a settler colonial enterprise. And this is what Israel is. And it's not hyperbole to say that. It's not something an activist would say. This is actually the reality. So when you hear these words, if I don't see it, someone else will. This is someone that is poisoned by this mentality, the self-righteousness of you don't belong here, I do. And this is what drives many of the Israeli settlers moving illegally into East Jerusalem more broadly. Though others are more motivated by government subsidies that make settlement housing cheaper. In occupied East Jerusalem, there are about 220,000 Israeli settlers for about 340,000 Palestinians. We take house after house because this area belongs to the Jewish people and our uh, dream that all uh, East Jerusalem will be like uh, West Jerusalem, Jewish capital of Israel. So for someone who has never seen Sheikh Jarrah, what kind of a neighborhood is it? How many people live there? Sheikh Jarrah lies about two kilometers north of the old city walls. And in total, there are about 3,000 Palestinians living there. Now, in the area that is under threat of forced displacement, it's called Karmel Jarouni. And this is where you have about 28 families who number around 550 people. Lena says within Sheikh Jarrah, this part of the neighborhood is visibly less developed. The neighborhood itself, it's a juxtaposition of affluent areas. You have the American Colony Hotel, you have the Ambassador Hotel. A lot of diplomats actually work in that area. But at the same time, there's barely a street that separates these more affluent areas from the neighborhood that Palestinian families live in. And these roads are unpaved, they're falling into disrepair, the houses are old. The Israeli municipality in the city, it makes it extremely hard, notoriously difficult for Palestinians to obtain permits to make them more up to date. So these houses, which were built, let's say, back in the 1950s, they're still the same houses that you see today. There's basically two realities, and they're barely separated by a street. There has been a court ruling over this specific case of the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, over some of the homes there and who they belong to. Can you walk us through the case? I think we should be wary of not falling into this narrative that this is simply a real estate issue. It's definitely not. I mean, this is pure colonialism 101. The Israeli set, there's, there's a bunch of settler organizations, most of them funded by U.S. donors, and they're very powerful and, and they've resorted to legal measures to force the Palestinians out of their homes. The whole issue with Sheikh Jarrah, it basically took off in 1972, where a number of settler organizations, they filed a lawsuit saying that Sheikh Jarrah originally belongs to them and that they have papers that prove that this land was under previous Jewish ownership. A Jewish settler organization says the land was owned by Jews before 1948. The lawyer representing the Palestinian families says their counterclaims of ownership have not been properly assessed by the courts. Now, the homes belong to Palestinian families. They were meant to get the titles from Jordan, which controlled East Jerusalem until the 1967 war. But that never happened. 
this is where basically the issue started. Even though these families, they say they have all the documents to prove that they have the right to, to stay in these homes, nothing really has moved in that in that direction, basically. We, we don't know, like no developments have happened yet. One of those families who's been ordered to leave is Russia's. In my parents' house, there are nine people. My parents, my brother, his wife, and his kids. We don't have any settlers inside, it's just us. And then there's another unit behind us uh, that belongs to my uncle, and they're also nine members. They're not evicted yet, but they have eviction rulings. In my family, their ruling is uh, in August, but then we have four other families that uh, have the rulings in May, but the, the court case postponed the final ruling for a month. We still don't know whether they will face eviction or what's going to happen. Everything is vague. They're all scared because they don't want to be evicted. Russia says they're afraid because of the expulsions that happened in the neighborhood in 2008 and 2009. It's becoming a familiar scene in East Jerusalem. Jewish settlers taking over a Palestinian home and dumping the furniture in the garden. They've hired a private security firm to help them, and the Israeli police are standing guard. They came really early in the morning at 4 a.m. and they bombed the doors and they kicked out the women in their nightgowns and they were throwing children from the second story to the soldiers holding a blanket. Imagine the scene, how horrifying and how, uh, I don't know, it's very scary and not to imagine that your kids and your family might go through the same thing. On May 9th, families like Russia's had a court decision on their fates postponed for another 30 days. But not before days of vigils in Sheikh Jarrah were attacked by settlers and Israeli security, as Lena reported. Throughout this past week, we've seen daily and nightly sit-ins and vigils, just basically a stance to show their support and almost protect the families and residents from the actions of settlers or the Israeli forces. Unfortunately, what's, what's been happening is that every night, these vigils, they keep getting attacked by fully armed Israeli forces who've used tear gas and rubber bullets and skunk water, which is chemically enhanced sewage water. Mm-hmm. There's been many, there's been dozens of arrests, there's been dozens of people wounded. And it's all over social media, basically. People are saying that this attempt at ethnic cleansing is happening in broad daylight. And it's just insane how mainstream media is not really picking up on this at all. The violence at these vigils and at the Al-Aqsa Mosque is often summed up with a catch-all kind of word, clashes. Fresh clashes in Jerusalem. Hundreds of Palestinian protesters were injured in clashes with Israeli police. Clashes have broken out every night since the start of the holy month of Ramadan. It's not a word Lena would use in her reporting. Clashes kind of implies an equal playing field, and what's happening is one population is being targeted by another. If you're sitting in your own home and all of a sudden a fully armed police officer or Israeli soldier starts firing tear gas and you start responding by chanting or by throwing rocks or even plastic chairs, as we witnessed one of these days, then that's not clashes. That's just, you know, a natural response. Just briefly, we're talking about Sheikh Jarrah now, but it's not the only neighborhood in occupied East Jerusalem where Palestinians are 
facing forced expulsions. What are some of the others? Yes, that's correct. Sheikh Jarrah is just one example of what's happening in Palestinian neighborhoods in East Jerusalem. And I'm talking about settlement expansion on Palestinian lands. I'm talking about the eviction of Palestinian families from their own homes to make way for Jewish settlers. And I think the most blatant uh, example is Silwan. The steep slopes of Silwan have, in recent years, become ever more dotted with Jewish settler homes. Silwan is a neighborhood of East Jerusalem. It lies just south of the old city. There are about 20,000 Palestinians who live there and around 500 Israeli settlers scattered among them. And the reason why these settlers are scattered is because Israel is aiming to build like a contiguous belt to further entrench the Jewish presence among Palestinians. They've said that they want to build an archaeological park called the City of David. But they're building this on Palestinian lands, and the Palestinians who live there are under threat of being displaced from their homes. There's been rounds of demolition orders. So again, this is just, this is happening all over East Jerusalem. These actions aren't happening in a vacuum. This is part of a policy for East Jerusalem. What can you tell me about the Greater Jerusalem Plan? So in 1967, Israel captured East Jerusalem, and it's been under its occupation until today. Now, Israel has plans for Jerusalem. They see it as their capital, which is not recognized by the majority of the international community. So the Greater Jerusalem Policy, it's a scheme designed to expand and add on to the Jewish-Israeli presence inside the city, while simultaneously limiting the Palestinian presence itself. Decades ago, the Israeli government aimed for a split of 70% Jewish Israelis and 30% Arabs. But in 2007, that number changed to 60-40, according to what the city municipality called its Jerusalem Master Plan 2000. And the whole idea of this is to build a contiguous territory by connecting the dots between the settlements in Palestinian neighborhoods and Jerusalemite suburbs. So that's just to create a demographic balance that favors Jewish-Israeli presence. What's going on in Sheikh Jarrah has generated a lot of attention around the world. But Lena says what's interesting is how much more attention it gained among Palestinians, given that this has been going on for so long. I think Palestinians across the country, they've definitely become more aware of what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah. Again, it's nothing new. They've seen this before. And what's happening in the neighborhood is also the same like what's happening in, let's say, in West Bank villages, for example. So, you know, it's a continuation of these Israeli policies. But again, because Sheikh Jarrah is in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is a special place in Palestinians see it as their capital. So I think there's, there's that extra attention afforded to it. Lena says it's important to watch for actions from Hamas, which have begun to play out. There was a statement from Hamas's shadowy commander, Mohammed al-Dif. A lot of people don't even know what he looks like. And this statement was his first in several years. He warned Israel of the consequences should they continue with their policies in Sheikh Jarrah. He specifically mentioned that. Basically, it's a warning from Hamas's commander. And you don't want to take that too lightly. And I'm not talking about Hamas's political leadership. I'm talking about Hamas's commander himself. So. Going back to the families in East Jerusalem who are facing expulsion, where does this leave them? What kind of legal recourse do they have to fight this? I mean, you look at it this way. If the system that you're fighting against is inherently discriminatory against you, then who do you go to? 
if your enemy is the judge, then who do you go to? This is a discriminatory system that is designed to heavily favor one population, the Israeli Jewish uh, settlers or over the Palestinians. For Russia's family, nothing about the legal process, even this most recent delay on the court decision, has felt like justice. It's not victory, definitely. It's not victory. It, it gives us more time, yes, okay, to be in our homes longer, but that's not victory. Victory is them saying that these are our homes. We're under occupation and we are occupied by the Israelis and they are the ones who are running the legal system. So it's, it's, it's just not fair. I don't think it's fair uh, for us to be judged and ruled by our occupiers. You know what I mean? In the end, this case will go back to an Israeli court. And it's rare for an Israeli court to rule in favor of Palestinians in these cases. And that left me with one question. If these families do lose the legal process and their homes, where do they go? What happens usually is that these Palestinians, they have no other choice but to move into another neighborhood or another area in East Jerusalem. Unfortunately, the rent prices in Jerusalem are super high and owning land is almost out of the question because of the high uh, prices. And what ends up happening is that these families, I'm not saying all of them, I'm saying some of them, their only option would be to move to the West Bank where it's more affordable to live. Unfortunately, once you move to the West Bank, these Palestinians, they risk losing their Jerusalem residency cards. And again, that kind of plays into the whole policy of getting that majority of Jewish Israelis in the city and less of Palestinians. For now, Russia's family isn't envisioning a future outside of Sheikh Jarrah. When we talked about, you know, what will you do if you were to be evicted, my father told me that, Baba, I will not leave unless I am a dead body. He will not leave the house unless he's in his coffin. He will fight for his right and his basic right, his home and they will never leave it, and they will fight for it until the last drop of blood in their veins. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Loth, with Dina Kispe, Nagin Oliai, Priyanka Tilbe, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Fenton is our editor. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back on Friday.